click record. So hello everybody, welcome to Ancient Modern. Today I'm very pleased to have uh, Professor Ian Morris with us. Ian is the um, Jean and Rebecca Willard uh, professor at Stanford, and he's the author of a number of books, including Why the West Rules for Now, which I have here. Um, War, What Is It Good For? And most recently, Geography is Destiny, which I, I believe is a, a sort of long-term history of Britain, right? That's right, yeah. Okay, so welcome to Ancient Modern Year. Um, I, I wanted to start off just by asking a kind of uh, question about your, your background and how you came to ancient history. So I guess you can divide ancient historians to people who have a more sort of philological side and people who have a more material culture, archaeological uh, side. And, and you have a place in the latter category. You seem, from the get-go, you seem to have come in ancient history, Greek history in particular, from archaeology. So how do you think that's uh, shaped your perspective on the ancient world? Well, I think, yeah, first of all, I, mean, I think that that's absolutely true. I uh, didn't originally intend to be an ancient historian at all. Um, when I was a little kid, I wanted to be an astronaut. I thought that was the, the way to go. And it came as this terrible shock to me in the late 60s to discover that the United Kingdom, where I grew up, did not have a manned space program. So my dreams of exploring the universe were, were dashed to the ground. But right around the same time, um, my parents took me to see a movie one night, and um, the, the sort of trailer movie before it was a short documentary based on Eric von Daniken's book Astronaut uh, Chariots of the Gods. I don't know, did you ever read Chariots of the Gods? No, Just but I mean, uh, I know the, the main thesis, which is a very interesting one. Yeah, sold 68 million copies. I mean, the basic idea was, um, the pyramids, um, you know, Machu Picchu, any great monument in the ancient world that you look at was actually built by um, astronauts from other planets who humans thought were gods. And it was actually a very cleverly argued book, although completely ridiculous. But I thought this was wonderful. And I realized, OK, being an astronaut, that is not the career goal for me. But being an archaeologist, that is clearly what it's all about. And then when I got into archaeology, I discovered it wasn't quite like Eric von Daniken. It's a bit disappointing compared to Eric von Daniken. But it was still a lot better than actually having a job. Um, but I, I originally intended to go into British archaeology. But then um, when I was an undergraduate, I was not the best undergraduate in the world, especially my first year. I really should have taken a gap year and had a job or something, got some 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 real life under my belt but I, so I had a really good time in my first year but did really badly on all the end of the year exams and the only ones I did kind of okay on were the Greek and Roman stuff because we'd done a little bit of that in high school so I thought okay I'm going to focus on the Greek and Roman channel and then once I started on that I discovered of course that this is really interesting stuff so it still hasn't yet risen to the heights of chariots of the gods but um, once I got down that path I found it sort of really hard to get out of it and then I discovered I could get a job doing it and stuck with it. So another another career path you didn't quite take, I, I hear, was um, being a guitarist for Iron Maiden. That's right, yes. Did you confirm or deny yeah. these uh, rumors? Yeah, well, I mean, this is one of the reasons why I didn't perform all that well in my first year as an undergraduate. I decided, you know, the, again, the astronauts, astronaut career having been dashed to the ground, um, archaeology had not yet become clear whether that would pan out. Um, I got really interested in rock music, decided this was absolutely what I wanted to do. And so spent my first undergraduate year drinking far too much and staying out much too late and not working very hard. And um, so I was lead guitarist in a number of bands um none of which did anything of 
any note whatsoever, which is very sad. Um, because I actually my, my very first career goal had been to be a professional footballer, like uh, association football. Um, but that failed because it turned out that I wasn't even mediocre at football. I was downright terrible at football. The thing with being a guitarist was I wasn't terrible at this. I was actually not bad at all at this, but I didn't have anything like the combination of skills and personality you need to make it in the music business. And it turned out a you know, boring, bland academia. That was just a much better fit for my boring, bland personality. Okay, so from Iron Maiden to the Iron Age, so you went on to write a thesis at Cambridge uh, on the early Iron Age and the development of the polis. And I think, this, did this book come out of your thesis? That's right, yeah, yeah. So this book is really, I mean, I, I found it so interesting because it's really a look at the development of the polis, the development of this new form of social organization in early Greece. Um, but it's also a book that's really interested in burials. I mean, as the title suggests, Burial in Ancient Society. The rise of the Greek city-state, and I mean, really, the rise of the Greek city-state, I think, is the the main thing you're interested in. But you, you go you go at it through these burials. So, so why are you so interested in in in, in old dead people? Why are you so interested in burials? Well, because in a way, you know, we're all interested in old dead people. They're, they're all dead now. Uh, but um, the burial thing that wasn't out of any particular fascination with morbid stuff. Um, it was just that you know the, this early Iron Age period after the collapse of the Mycenaean palaces around 1200 BCE, the, the Greek world becomes much poorer, the material culture much thinner and smaller, and um, not much survives. I mean, it's a very thin period in the archaeological record. Um, the kind of houses people were living in were very flimsily built on the whole, so they're very, very easily disturbed. And a lot of the main Iron Age settlements were on the same places as the modern cities in the Greek world, are. and for you know, simple geographical reasons, these are good places, useful places to live. And so they've had centuries and centuries of building on top of them and great big modern buildings with deep poured concrete foundations and so just not much survives of the ancient settlements and the burials of course obviously a burial you dig a hole in the ground it's that much more likely to survive disturbance and so um it's changed now but 40 years ago when i started working on this subject um the archaeological record consisted almost entirely of burials so i was sort of really thrown into the burial thing they're, they're really was no alternative okay so the story you tell us so there's this collapse at the end of the bronze age around 1200 or 1100 and then you get so early iron age greece and it seems like the story you're telling there is that you know these ritual burials are quite restricted maybe to a class called the agathoi and the greek society at that point seems to be based on this sort of serve master relationship which is a little bit different from the the chattel slavery that comes later right and then, and then there's a big change in your view around what 750 and what happens mm -hmm. then yeah, well, well, I should say that this was not um, this was the, the the thesis I ended up with was not at all where I started the work with. And I'm a big fan of failing early and failing often. And the, the the thesis I originally started out with, I then subsequently completely rejected and argued like 180 degrees the opposite kind of argument. And so I started into this stuff um, because I read a book which had just come out at the point I started my dissertation. The book had come out in 1980 and it was written by the guy who then became my dissertation advisor, Anthony Snodgrass. And in this book, he said, well, if you look at the number of burials in ancient Greece, the number just explodes in the 8th century BC. And this is just amazing. And he said it's like a, um, the population of the area around Athens increases fourfold in about 70 years. And so the rest of the book is then tracing out what he sees as the consequences of this population explosion. And I just thought this was fantastic. I thought it's, I've always been drawn to quantitative arguments. I just thought this was 
brilliantly rooted in the evidence. And so I thought, well, what could I do for dissertation? I know I could pick up where Antony left off and look at what happens to the number of burials after 700 BCE, because his book sort of becomes suspiciously vague and unclear once you get to 700 BCE, which I thought, well, this is, this is sort of odd. So what happens to the number of burials? And what I discover is... Um, after zipping upward, quadrupling in 70 years, the number of burials then collapses again, goes back really low. And so I thought, well, that's really interesting. There must have been some great depopulation in the Greek world. How can we explain that? What would its consequences be? But the more I got into the data, I started sort of just collecting again for myself all of the data evidence, looking at it. The more I got into the evidence, the more complicated I realized it was. And so one of the things that happens, um, the number of burials shoots up in the eighth century, but that, at least in part, that's because all of a sudden you start finding child burials, which before about 800 BCE, you just don't find child burials. And so I thought, well, was there some change in their beliefs or what was going on here? And what, what I discover, read a little bit of demography and discover that the sort of mortality patterns that we're used to in rich countries nowadays, where you know, very few children, I forget the numbers, but a you know, tiny percentage of children born alive are going to die before their fifth birthday. In pre-modern times, you've got close to a 50-50 chance of dying before you're 10 years old. We should expect there always to be lots and lots of burials. So what I realized is there must have been some change in the rituals so that they now start burying the kids in ways that are archaeologically visible, more likely for us to find. And then they stop doing that. And then I start looking at the adult burials and discover that you go from having these very homogeneous burials down to about 750 BC to suddenly having really varied, complicated sort of burial rites, everybody being buried in a different way. And then they suddenly get really simple again. So I, I start reading about what archaeologists have done in other parts of the world, including back in Britain, where I originally started to uh, plan to start my archaeological career and discover that this sort of pattern of these wild swings in the demographic representativeness of the burials and the sort of range of ideas that the burials have about the kinds of people they're burying. Often this seems to go along with um, changes generally in the visibility of different sections of the population. So. I managed to persuade myself um, that uh, at least that what happened in the 8th century is there's this general change in the burial rituals. And now um, a much wider proportion of the population, adults as well as children, is being given uh, sort of high status type burials, which are relatively easy for archaeologists to find. And then that goes away again in the 7th century. It's a rather complicated sort of pattern. And... Um, I realized that the goal for my dissertation now has to be to try to explain why did that happen? Why did you get this sort of opening up of the community um, and saying, you know, everybody within this community is equally deserving of a sort of high end burial rights that will be visible in the future to archaeologists. And then it, it gets sort of taken away again. And that was the point at which, I mean, coming back to your earlier question about how archaeology um, sort of shapes my sense of ancient history, this was the point at which what I was doing started to converge with what a lot of ancient Greek social historians have been doing over the previous 20, 30 years. Whereas what they'd been asking about was, well, at what point did and how did the Greeks create 
a vision of a, a city-state community where um, just by being born of, of free parents within that community, you were automatically a citizen, where it didn't matter how rich or poor you were, what kind of education you got, anything like that, just being born from citizen parents automatically made you a citizen, and even in some cases part of a democratic community where all of the citizens have equal political freedoms, equal political rights, and so on. And I thought, aha, this 8th century BCE change, that has got to be something to do with this transformation of the idea of what it means to be part of one of these city-state communities, the birth of the idea of the citizen. And of course, you know, like all these um, historical arguments, there's a lot more to it than that. And so it ended up being, rather than a five-minute spiel, an entire book for trying to explain this. But yeah, it was like realising that the archaeological evidence and the very fragmentary written evidence we've got from early Greece. These two subjects kind of flowed into each other and each could inform the other. Right, so one of the communities that we think of when we think of these democratic Greek city-states is of course classical Athens. But so my, my memory and my understanding is that your story about Athens in this book is particularly complicated because it seems like there's the birth of this polis ideal across Greece, but actually early on at least around 700, it seems that Athens is gonna be uh, one of these communities that sort of slides back into the past. Um, and then you get another sort of revolution that happens with Solon and Cleisthenes. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. I mean, you, I mean, as you know, there's hundreds of separate Greek city-states. And most of the time, these hundreds of separate places have a great deal in common. They do a lot of things the same, but there are always differences. You know, different places are different. And each of them, each of them takes its own path. And so um, it seemed to me that over a not the whole of the Greek world, but a substantial chunk of the Greek world, like the central areas around the Aegean. In the eighth century, you get this general movement toward a more expansive, more open, more inclusive idea of what the community is. And Athens is very much part of this, maybe even one of the leaders um, in this. But then in different places, different things happen. And in Athens, um, th this move toward the more inclusive community, this gets, well, in the short term at least, decisively defeated somewhere around 700 BCE. Um, this, I thought, this was the point at which you see the um, the rise of the group that the later literary sources called the Eupatridae, the well-born ones, who are told completely dominated the city of Athens, and everybody else, says Aristotle, was kind of enslaved and ground down by the Eupatridae. And then uh, in the 6th century BC, that, that sort of relationship again collapses, and Athens moves back into the mainstream, and again, even becomes the leader in the shift toward the more inclusive male democratic kind of communities. But um, yeah, this was one of the things I started doing toward the end of my book, Burial in Ancient Society, and then did more in articles I published after that, was looking at some of the other city-states around Greece and asking, well, how do we see these dynamics playing out in their material record and in the, the fragments of literature we've got about, about them? And I think we generally, we just see this complicated sort of kaleidoscopic shifting patterns as they're all trying to work out you know, how do we want to do this what is going to be the most successful way to organize um, a city state is it going to be as a broad democratic community or can we in fact function as a narrow oligarchy or can we even go back and continue with one man rule so they're all trying out different stuff so what's ultimately your story about population in this period then? Because you make this very interesting uh, sound, I think, uh, archaeological, methodological point about how really it's what we see in the evidence. What we see in the evidence is what we see in the evidence. It's not necessarily how things work. So we, you can't just count off the number of burials. So ultimately, though, it is a story of increasing populations in, in archaic and Iron Age Greece, right? And this is connected with some more recent work you've done on the sort of 
growth of the Greek economy from the sort of nadir of the, um, the post-Bronze Age collapse. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the, the sort of work I was doing was part of a, a larger shift going on in the 1980s among prehistoric archaeologists towards saying that the material record as it survives in the present is not a simple one to one reflection of the realities in the past. And of course, that's glaringly obvious. Everybody's very well aware of this. But um, I think something is not unique to historians, to archaeologists, a lot of academic disciplines. There are these fundamental problems with uh, the way we um, do our research, which, which we're all well aware of the problems, but then sort of conveniently forget about them once we start doing the research. So like everybody knew already, yes, of course, um, the archaeological record is mediated uh, not only by sort of natural processes of transformation, that you know, not everything survives, some sites get destroyed, some sites get buried deeply, and so on, all that stuff going on, of course, but also by um, the actions people took in the past. So like you know, what's in a grave, it isn't like people are getting some official document from the government saying, you, know, you earn so much per year, therefore you must spend this amount on your funeral. You decide for yourselves as part of a ritual what you're going to do in that funeral. And you, the way you behave is normally um, driven by by how you think other people will look at what you're doing and whether they think that'll, whether you think that'll make you look good or not in other people's eyes. Um, so everybody was well aware that these things are going on, but then in practice, we tended to sort of say, oh, well, it'll probably all come out in the wash. No need to worry about it all that much. And I guess what I was doing is saying, well, no, wait a minute. At least in this case of the burials, um, deliberate ritual actions in the past completely transformed the relationship between the material record left behind for us to find and the actual actions of people living in the past. And so the challenge for the archaeologists is to figure out, can we come up with some sort of middle range theory to bridge between what we dig up, what survives now, and what was actually going on in the past? And so the minute you start down that path, that makes it very difficult to see how exactly we can reliably use the archaeological record to address things like population, um, which is, is problematic because on the one hand, well, it's obvious that there's some connection between the archaeological record and the size of the population. Um, you know, other things being equal, you should expect you know, the number of objects you find in the present to reflect the size of the population in the past. The challenge is to figure out well, what are the mediating influences? What can we still say about population size? And um, in fact, I think if you, you work work hard enough at it, you can get a pretty reasonable idea about uh, certainly the relative size of the population over time, um, from the Bronze Age through to the Classical period, Hellenistic period and on. And I think you can actually even go beyond that and make some reasonably well-informed stabs at the absolute population sizes. But uh, there certainly are a lot of problems to be overcome to get there. So, I mean, one of these problems is the, the Dark Age, you know, because there's been a movement recently to say, well, we shouldn't really call these eras the Dark Age because there's still stuff going on. And but I think that you think now that the Dark Age Greece really was dark. It isn't just that we aren't looking for enough sites in the Dark Age. Uh, there are ways of getting around that, right, with survey archaeology and so on. It seems like that really was just a period of defining populations, fewer settlements and things like that. Yeah, yeah. There's a, a I mean, archaeologists are not really known for good jokes, but one of our favorite jokes is we know it's the Dark Age because they didn't have any lamps during it. Which is absolutely, if you're an archaeologist, absolutely hilarious. Um, the, you know, they made clay oil lamps down to about 1200 BCE, and then they absolutely disappear from the records, start up again around 700 BCE, and those dates are, in fact, the dates we conventionally take as the beginning and the end of the Dark Age. So, so yeah, we think we're very amusing when we say that. But yeah, the the argument has become so. Is this period dark 
because it's simply it's dark to us. There are problems with the evidence so that it's difficult for us to access what's going on. Or is it dark in the sense that it's a period of significant material and intellectual decline in ancient times? And uh, I think very strongly that the answer really is both at once. There are major evidentiary problems. But a lot of these problems are the things that prevent us from seeing very clearly what was going on then. They're caused by the fact that it was a period of massive population decline, a massive decline in standard of living. And so one consequence of that is that when you're poorer, you have less stuff. I mean, you know, archaeology, this is not rocket science. Most of our arguments are really pretty simple. You've got less stuff. And so there's less stuff for us to dig up. And so it's harder for us to you know, see where people were living, harder for us to reconstruct their lifestyles, just because Everything is so much flimsier. Um, and so that's certainly that means that we you know, see less of what's going on than we do, say, in the classical period. But at the same time, it tells you something very fundamental about the quality of life during the early Iron Age. And I think this is borne out um, best really by looking at the human body, that after 1200 BCE, people start dying younger. They start having more diseases. They start being shorter because they're malnourished more in childhood. Just every indicator you look at, things got grim after about 1200 BCE. Well, they were grim before. They get more grim after 1200 BCE. Things remain grim, but they become less grim. Once you start 700, 600, 500, um, you know, and I always say to students, um, you know, given your choice, you should, if you were given your choice, you should never choose to live anywhere in the world in any pre-modern period, because all of them were absolutely horrible. You would die young, you'd probably die in childhood, you'd certainly die young, you would die malnourished and swarming with internal parasites and all of your joints aching. Even if you're rich, this is going to happen to you. Mm. But of all the places in the world that you could have lived before modern times, you've got to pick one then classical Greece is actually a pretty good choice. By the standards of the pre-modern world, classical Greek um, life it was long, you were well-fed, um, your, your material standards were often pretty high. And of course, there's counter arguments to that as well. Like in some places like Athens, up to one third of the population is enslaved. Uh, so there's, there's pluses and minuses with all these things. But by this comparative standards, classical Greece was not a bad place to be living. Okay, so then big question on that front. So what, why did this happen? Because you work on the early policies also sort of implicated in a larger narrative about Greece's place in the Bronze Age, right? So I think you, you think that Greece is basically like any other, or very much like any other Near Eastern civilization in the way its, its economy was organized, in the way it had these largely redistributive centers, at least in Crete, at least in the Minoan civilization, maybe in the Mycenaean palaces, slightly less redistributive. But then you get this huge crash and then you get what you might call a divergence. You know, you, you have the New Eastern civilizations come get back up and running, um, you know, near Assyrian Empire and so on. And then in Greece, you have something different that eventually ushers into the world of classical Greece that we sort of know and some of us love, you know, democracy, philosophy and reasonably high levels of, um, of human comfort and development. So, yeah, do you want to talk a bit, bit about that? Because I know that that whole idea that Greece is, is exceptional has come under attack recently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, this is a really interesting question. I think this, this you know, for anybody interested in the ancient Greek world, this ought to be the central question. You know, why does Greece go off down this path that, um, as you say, in many ways is really very, very distinctive. And um, 
because there are some people who say, well, it, it didn't. Um, this has been misunderstood completely. The Greeks really weren't that different from anybody else. Um, I think that that is hard to maintain, particularly on the material front, where now you know, we've just got so much evidence that um, material living standards in the Greek world were really very, very high for the ancient world. And Greek democracy, I and mean, there's a lot of people who will say, well, there are a lot of similar organizations, similar ways of running cities in the Near East and other parts of the world. And uh, I think that up to a point, they, they they do have a point that some of the earlier 20th century scholarship sometimes overstated the political difference between Greek cities and other ancient cities. But still, you know, a place like classical Athens, politically, um, institutionally, it really is very different from most other places in the ancient world. So I think it, it's hard to dismiss Greek exceptionalism altogether, say the Greeks were just like the other people. But saying, why did Greeks go off this way? That is, is much tougher. And um, there's um, a lot of arguments going on right now about why that might have been. And so um, we, one of my colleagues, your dissertation advisor, who I gather you've had on the podcast recently, Josh Ober. Josh is a very big believer that it's really all driven by the particular sorts of institutions that the Greeks develop um, in the classical period that um, you know, free up a lot of creative energies and, and drive a sort of economic boom unlike what we've seen in large parts of the ancient world and uh, also create this sort of intellectually open space where all kinds of new ideas can flourish and this is really the thing that makes the Greek world different from everybody else and um, I guess I would say that that's certainly not completely wrong um, but I do think that if you Look at what happened to the Greek city-states in a larger context. One of the things that immediately will strike you is the sort of population growth we're talking about in the Greek world. You see the same kind of thing in the first millennium BCE, all the way from Spain to China. This is a very, very large-scale process. And the Greek version probably is extreme. It might have had the fastest population growth in the whole region, but it's part of a larger pattern. When you look at things like the expansion of trade routes, the um, expansion of the use of writing, the growth of literacy, again, all these things, you get them across this entire area. And in so many ways, what happens in Greece is an extreme version of what's going on on a much, much larger scale. So I think um, that any explanation that we get for the Greek miracle or whatever you want to call it has to be one that at least in some ways applies over this entire area. And so that has always pushed me toward looking at sort of higher level phenomena that obviously your Greek institutional change that doesn't explain why you get an economic boom in fifth and fourth century BCE China or India obviously not so th there has to be something else going on and I think one of the big things that is going on is one of the big periods of post ice age climate change uh, toward a um, an environment that was just much more favorable for people in the Mediterranean world I think it's got a and it, but also this applies the whole way across to China China. They're all going through a similar um, sort of period. I think that drives a lot of the population growth. A lot of the institutional change we see is a response to, well, how do we organize new kinds of societies um, within this changed environment where there's a lot more people, a lot more wealth potentially out there, um, a lot more wealth to support uh, intellectuals and other professionals learning to do things in much more sophisticated ways than they've been doing in the Bronze Age. So I think the Greek world is very, very much part of this larger pattern. And one of the responses people all the way from China to Spain come up with is um, much more intensive long distance trade of uh, developing regional comparative advantages, specializing particular things, moving goods around through markets. And um, this is something the Greeks do very much. But again, you see it all the way out to China. Um, and 
I think one of the reasons why the Greeks flourish so much within this larger set of changes going on across this huge area is that um, the Greek world is really well placed to take advantage of these expanding trade work networks across the Mediterranean Sea. The Phoenicians in what's now Lebanon and the ancient Greeks really well placed to be the center, the, the main hubs of maritime networks connecting together all these different parts of the Mediterranean, all this wealth flowing through the Greek world. And in contrast to a lot of the Near Eastern civilizations, um, I think we do have reasonable evidence that the wealth is much more widely distributed in the Greek world. That, um, again, you know, anytime you talk about a topic like this, you've always got this issue of slavery to think about. But within the non-slave population, and even actually creeping somewhat into the slave population, you've got a uh, sort of lower levels of inequality in the Greek world than in most of the other places we can see in the ancient world. So I guess you know, where I would differ from Josh is that I would say those institutional changes are extremely important, but they're part of a uniquely Greek version of a much larger set of changes. But yeah, arguments are likely to continue over this for many years to come. Right, it's great. And it's great to sort of have these conversations again, some of these really interesting conversations that I was having at grad school. So it's, and, and you take this position, the sort of geographical, maybe determinist is, is too rude a term to use, but you take a sort of uh, a position which is sort of strongly informed by geography and climate. And, and it's it's extremely interesting perspective. Um, as you said at the end there, though, so you have to walk this fine line that Greece is the same as these other places in some ways, but it also is a little bit unique. I mean, it has slightly higher levels of economic development. You do get these higher levels of equality, of equality among the citizen class, and you do get things like strong forms of democracy, which you just don't get in other places. So then, if you and then you try to say, well, okay, part of the story is that Greece is in this privileged place in the Eastern Mediterranean; it's the center of all these trade routes. And then the the question is, so why is that different later on? Because you look at uh, later phases of Greek history, and they're in the same place, right? But it doesn't go so well for them. You know, maybe the Byzantines are doing okay, but in medieval Greece, these aren't very prosperous places. They're in places with flourishing democracies and a, a big philosophical scene, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I actually I'm, don't take offense when people call me a geographical determinist. I mean, I think all of us are determinists in some way or other. We just disagree on what is the level at which we find the determining factor. And I mean, I, the, my most recent book, which came out this spring, was called Geography is Destiny. So, you know, if I can hardly deny uh, the charge of being a determinist. But, you know, what I, the argument to make in that book, that, that book's looking the long-term history of the British Isles, which I think is an extremely interesting case of um, how geography works. Geography drives history, but at the same time, history drives what geography means. And so it's like um, geography is destiny, but it's up to us to decide what we're going to do about it. So people always have freedom of maneuver, um, but within certain limits. So like um, I, mean, I went a couple of years ago, gave a talk in Nepal. A friend of mine organized a conference in Kathmandu, which is really cool. It's one of the nice things about knowing uh, people who can organize things, you get invited to conferences and cool places. So we went off to Kathmandu and I was writing my book about the British Isles at that point. And so I decided that rather than talking about my book about Britain, I would talk about what the book would look like if I'd written it about Nepal instead. And that was a really... Uh, informative exercises because Nepal's geography has a very, very powerful determining effect on its history. That uh, there's been periods when there's been powerful um, Nepali kings and when Nepali courts were centers of culture, the people from all over India and China came to Nepal, came to Kathmandu to consult with learned people. Um, 
But that went on within a geographical setting where Nepal was always stuck on the side of the Himalayas and it was always landlocked and it was always trapped between these two enormous Indian and Chinese civilizations, often powerful empires as well. And this totally constrained how Nepali history could develop. And I guess I'd say this is a useful lesson to think about when thinking about a place like ancient Greece. Their geography provides them with certain challenges and opportunities. And those are real things and no one could make them go away just by saying, I don't like them. I'm going to pretend they don't exist. They do exist. You have to live within them. Um, but what you do about them, that is something you can decide. And what your, your decisions about what you do about geographical forces then interact with the decisions of everybody else all around you about what they are doing with the geographical forces. And I think this largely explains the, the points that you made, the Greek history, the geography, the physical geography changes somewhat, obviously, since the, the Ice Age ended, but it hasn't changed dramatically. It's like the, the geopolitical geography, and that has changed um, absolutely enormously. And so like the Greeks, you know, I was talking about the Greek classical Greeks flourishing um, the middle of the first millennium BCE, being where they were was a very advantageous position to take advantage of growing population and um, expanding trade routes. They The Greeks were on the fringe of a great empire, uh, the, the Persian Empire in the East Mediterranean. And they were at the intersection point um, between the Persian Empire, great center of consumption, sucking in resources and wealth and people from all around it, and a, a rich area of resources further to the west than the Mediterranean base. And the Mediterranean Sea provided all these by ancient standards, very cheap ways of moving goods very long distances. You know, maritime transport, of course, always so much cheaper than land transport. And so a situation like that, it that made it possible for the Greeks First of all, to insert themselves into maritime networks that the Phoenicians had been dominating and start to become as wealthy as the Phoenicians were. And then um, to use that wealth not only to resist the expansion of the Persian Empire, defeat the Persians in the 5th century BCE, but actually to push back against the Persians and start to become um, a major political centre in the Mediterranean basin in their own right. And um, I think as the Greeks go down that path, more and more wealth is being sucked into the Greek world. Um, but then they get sort of knocked off that top perch, if you like, by uh, because of a, a process we see happening again and again and again through history, where the region that's sort of on the periphery of the, the great core. So like the Persian Empire is the great core, the Greeks were the periphery. That peripheral region starts to become powerful and important, becomes a core in its own right. Greece starts to become an independent core. Further to the west, Italy becomes a periphery to the Greek world. Then Italy starts to emerge as an independent core. Rome, of course, becomes the, the ultimate core region later in the first millennium. The Romans take over the entire Mediterranean basin. And as they do so, the sort of geopolitics of Greece's position, geoeconomics, that begins to change. Greece is no longer the conduit through which all this stuff is, is flowing. The Romans suck away that wealth for themselves. And so like the link between Rome and Carthage, that gets to be really important. And Rome and Alexandria, that gets to be really important. Greece starts moving back toward being a periphery in this larger um, Mediterranean system. And I think you know things like this have been going on constantly throughout 
throughout history. So there's a period in the later Roman Empire, 5th and 6th centuries, when Greece again starts to emerge as the central node in large networks. Then it gets knocked off that again. The Arab conquest is very important for knocking that off. Greece really goes into the doldrums for about a millennium. It becomes an absolute backwater in the larger systems and only begins to emerge slightly, I'd say, in the course of the 20th century. So, yeah, I say absolutely geography is destiny. I am a geographical determinist, but I think even the, the most hardcore determinists, you have to recognise that human beings are real people. We do get to decide things for ourselves. And the question is always, how much latitude do you have to push back against the vast impersonal forces that are, are ultimately driving your life? Right, so the meaning of geography changes through history as different things happen. So now you're doing the kind of analysis that you do in this book, which I want to turn to now. So why the West rules for now? Uh, subtitles the patterns of history and what they reveal about the future so this is a book about the great divergence between east and west really so what's the big question in this book and why is it so important yeah well the big question um is one a lot of people um have been asking me for the last 250 years is you know, why <clears throat> why does this relatively small group of nations around the shores of the north atlantic start to dominate the entire planet beginning somewhere around the 18th century CE, because there'd never been anything like this before in the entire history of the world. You'd had um, regional powers like the Roman Empire, or the Han Dynasty in China, the Mughals in India, you know, lots of these regional powers, but there'd never been a global power. And it's certainly never been a power whose sort of geographical reach was so enormous proportionate to the size, the physical size of the power itself, as you get with the, the West, um, you know, these areas around the North Atlantic, starting in the 18th century. So a lot of people have been asking this question for a long time. Um, and it had become a particularly pressing question, I think, since about the 1990s, when it became clear that the, the takeoff, like, well, the takeoff of Japan back in the 1960s had begun to make the East-West thing a more pressing question. But the takeoff of China in the 90s, that was what really put it on the front burner for a lot of academics, as it became clear that China was not just a sort of bigger version of Japan. China was turning into the biggest economic player in the history of the world. This was a, a revolution was now going on during our own lifetimes, a revolution going on that compares with the 18th, 19th century revolutions that put the West at the top of the world. So this was emerging in the 2000s as one of the most pressing questions in the social sciences. Why did the West come to dominate the planet? And I've been talking to a lot of people um, about this over the years. And in the middle of the 2000s, I began to realize, you know, I've actually got my own answer to this question, which I think is different enough from what other social scientists are saying that it actually might be kind of a good idea to write a book about it. So that's kind of what took me in this direction. Okay, and uh, let's go back to you being a geographical determinist, because of course there's a famous book by Jared Diamond, Guns, Germs and Seal, that seeks to explain this very question. And I think he calls it Yali's question. He's a friend in, I think, Papua New Guinea, who basically says to him, what happened here? Why is it that my country is so much poorer than yours? And he seeks to answer it through things like, you know, Eurasia is much bigger, it goes west to east rather than north to south, uh, you know, different um, rates of sort of domesticating plants and animals. It was much easier to domesticate plants and animals in the West, et cetera, et cetera. So in what ways is your book and your account of this process different from his? Mm. Yeah, well, well, first, I'm sorry, um, maybe we can just cut this bit out. The dogs are having a little fit. Let me go yeah. see what- Go ahead. Yeah. 
All right, oh. so my apologies for the interruption there. My my wife came home and so the dogs had a fit. And so now now I think we're all quiet again. You thought there might be a, a pirate or something, an intruder. <laughs> so should we just pick up um where yeah, so the so the question was just um yeah, what, what ways is the yearbook different from Jared Diamonds? Yeah, well, I guess the, I mean, the first thing I should say is I think Guns, Germs and Steel is a tremendous book. I think it's one of the, the best books of, certainly of the 1990s. Um it now, you know, 25 years on, uh, you know, so much has happened in archaeology that already a lot of the arguments Jared Diamond made are beginning to look a bit dated. There's all kinds of ways in which we would now change it. But I still, I think that was really very, very important book. And one of the best things about it was the way he redirected people's attention to the importance of geography and said that sometimes very simple geographical features can explain a lot of stuff. And so um, when I started writing about geography and world history, uh, I did take up a lot of the ideas that Diamond had suggested. But I think the way and the big way I'd say, two, two big ways in which I'd say my work is different from his. One is this, this Yali's question uh, issue that you raised, which is how he began the book. Um, Yali's question is, Really, it's more of a north-south question than an east-west question. It's basically saying, why do rich countries in the northern hemisphere have all the stuff and poor countries, the global south, don't have any of the stuff? And I think to a great extent, um, Diamond answered that question pretty well. There's been a lot of changes since then, but I think is when you get right down to his answer still pretty much holds where his book i felt didn't do such a good job was talking about the differences between east and west um and particularly this real transformation since the 18th century why does the industrial revolution happen by the north atlantic rather than by the western pacific um you know why is it the west that takes off not the east so that was something that i felt his book didn't do such a good job of and then the other way in which i think my work differs very much from his is that his like a lot of social scientists what he tends to do is look a lot at evidence from the present from very recent times and then we'll jump back to the neolithic period right after the end of the ice age and all of the stuff that happened in between like basically the entirety of recorded human history history is kind of a flyover zone that gets treated very quickly in a couple of chapters and I think one of the things you get from being a historian is this ingrained sense that one thing leads to another there are no flyover zones you have to tell a continuous narrative and I think for me it was trying to tell the continuous narrative that made me realize all the things that were missing from Jared Diamond's account particularly when you wanted to try to explain why one sector of the northern hemisphere rather than another had been the one that came to dominate the planet yeah, because a big part of his story is this whole idea that there are just more domesticable crops and uh, sort of hilly planks in the Fertile Crescent than there are in other areas of the world where we have these indigenous discoveries or invention of agriculture, uh, like like China. Um, so, um, so yeah, so 
if that's the case, and you talk about that too, why don't we then get what you call a sort of long-term lock-in story, right? Because you could just yeah. say, well, that's it. And, you know, there's these things that happened around the time of the Neolithic Revolution, about 10,000 BC. And then that's, you know, then the West just, you know, is constantly ahead and the East is constantly behind. That's not quite the story you're telling, right? That's right. Yeah, I think when you try to tell it as a continuous story, you realize that um, the issues that Jared Diamond put his finger on, they can only be part of the answer. I mean, I think he was largely right in what he said, although, again, you know, the archaeological evidence has changed so much uh, in the 25 years since he wrote it. Now, um, we look at these things in a rather more complicated sort of way. But I think to a great extent, he was right about the importance of the Neolithic beginning in Western Asia and in what we now call the Middle East rather than in East Asia. But if that was all there was to the story, then, yes, you would expect social development to have always been higher in those parts of the world that have sort of grown out from that original agricultural revolution. So the Mediterranean basin, Europe, the, the Middle East. And yet that isn't the case. Um, by about 550 AD, 550 CE, Eastern development had caught up with an overtaken Western development. And for 1200 years, China is the absolute center of the world in terms of population size, wealth, learning, whatever you look at, engineering, everything. China is the global leader. And this is not a short period of time. This is 1,200 years that this goes on for. And then very abruptly in recent times, um, Western societies catch up with and overtake China. So uh, you know, again, while I think in in terms of looking at the northern and southern hemispheres, Jared Diamond, I think he basically gets the story right. This doesn't explain why China went from not being the leader to being the leader and then went back to not being the leader again and why there are now all these signs that it's coming back to being the leader again. So that, that was what I was really trying to explain in my book. So the, the flyover country that you called it, so it was basically ancient history, right? It's the story of ancient civilizations. That's so right. why does that help? Because, you know, if you're a hard-boiled skeptic, maybe you're working in policy or political science, you're trying to figure out what's happening in the present, you think, oh, there's this book about the ancient world, but, you know, who cares about that? Because, yes, there were the bronze, these Bronze Age civilizations, and then they collapsed, and that must have kind of wiped the slate clean. And then there was the rise of the Roman Empire, and that collapsed, too. And, you know, what, what I'm really interested in is this, this divergence in the early modern period when the West sort of explodes ahead of the rest. So is it really credible that things like the fall of the Roman Empire could have had an impact on the, on the 18th and 19th centuries? Yes, uh, the short answer, yes. Um, I think, uh, again, you, if you're trying to, uh, again, what I was trying to do in my book was show you what are the big forces that have driven this larger story. And um, the conclusion I came to in the course of writing the book, I mean, it won't surprise you after what we've been saying earlier in our conversation, is of course that geography was the driving force in the entire story. And that, um, what happened was that initially geography very much favoured the western ends of the old world, because this is where the agricultural revolutions begin. Um, but that that in itself was not the, the end of the story. That um, basically once you get developments happening in one part of the world, things start spreading around to the rest of the world from there. And so there's always this convergence going on between East and West, like, um, like the Chinese pick up the cultivation of wheat from the West, comes across Central Asia. They pick up the use of iron from the West, comes across Central Asia. This convergence um, that's going on. And uh, you get constant interruptions in this story as well, when great things happen, like the, the Roman Empire breaks down, which do have the potential uh, to 
reverse um, where the centres of social development are. This is the point at which East Asia begins to catch up with the West, is right at the point the Roman Empire collapses. So again, I think it's all part of one larger story. If you want to understand why the Atlantic suddenly became the centre of the world, the only way I think you get it is when you see the developments of the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries within this larger global story and um, that basically what happened around the Atlantic was the same as what had been happening around the Mediterranean in ancient times around the Euphrates and Tigris rivers in prehistoric times that as the levels of technology and organization keep rising it's like we're constantly shrinking geography the Atlantic went from being a barrier between Europe and the rest of the world to being a sort of connecting highway between Europe and the rest of the world in a way that the Pacific Ocean didn't do that during the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries because the Pacific Ocean is still just too big. It was possible for people to cross it but it could never become a commercial highway the way the Atlantic could until you really got um, up to the point of container ships and all these modern 20th century developments. And so I think the value of looking at the longer term is you see this constant pattern of the shrinking of geography, um, the opportunities this presents to people as geography is changing its meanings. And what is happening in our time, I think, and really since certainly since World War II, is we've seen the Pacific Ocean shrinking in the way the Atlantic had done formerly. And that's why, you know, just as, say, um, you know, North America goes from being a periphery to the British core to being a core in its own right, as the Atlantic shrinks in the 19th and 20th centuries, we've seen East Asia go from being a periphery to a North American dominant global market to beginning to become the core of new global markets of its own in the 20th into 21st centuries. So it's all part of one long story. And that, I think, is what you get from looking at it as a continuous narrative. Right. Yeah. I'm glad you're talking, you're talking about the Atlantic and Pacific, because I actually I read this book. I really enjoyed it. And I sort of came away thinking, OK, if Ian were asked to sort of name one thing that really made the difference in terms of the early modern divergence between Europe and China, he would probably point to the fact that the Atlantic Ocean was so much smaller than the Pacific Ocean. Because there's this big question about, you know, the Chinese had all these great ships. They had this seven foot tall Muslim eunuch admiral, Zhang He, who had these, you know, big uh, traveling uh, fleets. And compared to Columbus, you know, compared to him, Columbus just had these three lousy ships. And so the question is, why do things take off in Europe? And your answer is just that it was much easier for Columbus, right? So. If, if that's the case, though, what do you make of these objections about, well, OK, the Europeans got to North America, but it was also kind of a mixed blessing, right? Because the, the Spaniards and the Portuguese who exploited, first the Spaniards, who exploited South America, they got a ton of silver, they got a ton of gold. But I think economic historians think that really that just led to a lot of inflation, right? So was it really that, that decisive that they got to North America first? Yeah, well, again, I think this goes back to this thing about geography being destiny, but it, then it, it's up to us to decide what we do about it. And um, when the Spaniards and the Portuguese are the best placed of the Europeans to access the New World and access the West Coast of Africa, get down into the Indian Ocean um, during the 15th century, once ships became available that could do this, it's not very surprising at all that it was Iberians who led the way in this development. And um, nor is it very surprising that when the Iberians got to the New World, when they discovered there was a lot, the Aztecs had a lot of gold. Not at all surprising that the first thing they did was steal all that gold, kill as many of the Aztecs as they needed to, and then the same with the Incas, steal all the treasure. You know, the English, the Dutch, the French would have done exactly the same things had they been in a position to do so. But they weren't, because the Spaniards and Portuguese were able to get in and do these things first. That having happened, um, 
on the whole, people in Northern Europe weren't very interested in North America, weren't very interested in crossing the Atlantic and trying to do stuff with it, because um, it seemed like all the good stuff had already been gobbled up by the Spaniards. And what happened across the course, I think particularly the six, late 16th into the 17th century, was people in Northern Europe began to discover new ways that they could use this shrinking, this changing geography, the shrinking Atlantic, use that to their own advantages. And the initial one, very simple one, um, starting up in the 16th century is, oh, OK, the Spaniards have got all this gold. They dug these huge mines down in Colombia. They're digging up all the silver. They're bringing that back to Spain, as you say, we're drives terrible inflation bring it all back to spain obvious thing for us to do is go out there in the atlantic and steal it so um you know north europeans are really very very committed to piracy and when um english sailors start going to the new world uh they are there primarily to establish bases from which to plunder the spanish trade trade routes this really doesn't go very well at all um even the guys who do succeed at it like francis drake they don't succeed in the ways they thought they were going to succeed and there's a widespread sense in the 16th century in Northern Europe, the New World is a great disappointment. But what, what changes that is when people at colonies like Jamestown in Virginia, the English colony is set up at the beginning of the 17th century, they discover there are other ways to get rich there. Actually, I mean, even before Jamestown, they're, they're finding this down in the Caribbean. There are other ways to get rich than just by stealing stuff. And one way you can get rich is by growing stuff in the New World that people back in Europe really want and will pay money for. So it's sort of a different vision of what you can do with this new geographical arrangement. In addition to just using the shrinking of the Atlantic as a way to get to the New World quickly and steal all the silver, you can also use the shrinking of the Atlantic as a way to exploit the geographical differences around it and take advantage of New World climates to grow crops like sugar and tobacco originally. And then, of course, um, uh, cotton becomes so much more important in the 19th century. Grow these in the New World um, at lower prices and higher quality than you can back in Europe. Bring them back to Europe, sell them there, make all this money. And um, the way it develops, historians often call it the triangular trades. I mean, for good reason, it has a three points on it. And it, the triangular trades become this machine, this motor for generating wealth, unlike anything the world has ever seen before. And the way it works, I mean, it's not a pretty story. In fact, it's one of the most disreputable stories in the whole of world history. But like you could start off in Liverpool or Bristol in England uh, as a merchant. You are making uh, hats or guns or cloaks or clay pipes or whatever. Load up a ship with these things in Bristol, sail it down to West Africa, where you exchange your guns or cloaks for human beings, for slaves. And you load up your ship with slaves and you make a profit on that exchange. So that's a, this Liverpool, Bristol, your first node, West Africa, your second node. Then you sail across the Atlantic to the Caribbean or Virginia, or wherever it might be, where you exchange the slaves for sugar or tobacco, making a profit again on that exchange. And then you take the sugar or tobacco back to England, sell them on the market, make a profit again at that point, and then use the, the three sets of profits you've made now to buy a whole new set of ships or guns or boats or hats or whatever. Off you go to West Africa again. And now nobody had really foreseen this, but this turned in the long run into a much, much bigger generator of wealth than just stealing silver from the new world. So this is you know, the way geography changes its meaning. It changes the opportunities and the challenges available to people. And it sets off this whole this, this cascade of changes in Western Europe that 
as um, intellectuals begin to realize that you're getting across the Atlantic, getting back again safely, this may, can make you so enormously wealthy. If we just understood how the winds and the tides really work, how the stars move in the skies, how the wind operates, the, the limits to un, uh, potential wealth making would just disappear if we really understood these things. And this, I would say, this is the real force driving the scientific revolution in 17th century Europe. It's not that Europeans are innately more scientific than Chinese or Arabs or Indians or anyone else. It's just that the incentives have changed. And now if you great men like Sir Isaac Newton say, instead of worrying about classical scholarship, studying Latin texts, what you're going to do is worry about numbers and how gravity works and how the stars move in the sky. So you get this incentive on the intellectuals to solve these problems. And then the 18th century, this starts to spill over into social questions. People saying, oh, we've got all these scientific ways of thinking about the world. What if we applied them to how our own societies work? And so Europe has an enlightenment rather than China, rather than India. And again, not because Europeans are inherently more enlightened. It's just that these new meanings of geography are thrusting a series of new questions onto them, opening up the possibility of new rewards, and, and on it goes. So yeah, I would say that the shrinking of the Atlantic, the changing of the meanings of its geography, those are the, 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 the proximate cause of why the West comes to dominate the world. But that's just the up to that point, the latest version of a longer story, like the shrinking of the Mediterranean in ancient times. This is what made the Roman, the Greek worlds so much more wealthy and sophisticated than any other ancient civilization. The, the shrinking, the mastering of the Nile, Tigris, Euphrates, Yellow River, Yangtze, this is what made um, the Ganges, you know, this is what made those civilizations so much more powerful and sophisticated than any of their predecessors. So I say again, it's a, a global long-term story. And if you want to understand what's happening now with the, the shrinking of the Pacific, it's just the latest chapter in this tens of thousands of years long story. Okay, so this isn't really an idea in your book, but I can't resist because your Stanford colleague, Walter Scheidel has written a book called Escape from Rome. And the theory in that is that um, you know, the Roman Empire fell and that meant that Europe never really recovered a sort of single polity in that space. Whereas in China, you have several installments that are kind of pan-Chinese state. And because of that, the Europeans uh, had all this, had this sort of patchwork of uh, microstates and states and that drove competition. And, it, uh, you know, in, in the intellectual sphere, it, it uh, drove a military revolution. Uh, and, you know, it also allowed people like Columbus to shop around. I mean, this is an idea in Jared Diamond's book, too. You know, he gets the answer no from one uh, possible patron. He just goes somewhere else. And eventually he gets the funding to, to do his mad trip across the ocean. And in China, by contrast, you know, it could just be a change in the power balance between the mandarins and the eunuchs and the fleets have to stop. So what do you think about that take? Yeah, I think, again, I would say this is one of the contributing factors rather than the driving factor. And uh, the reason I say that, um, uh, again, a similar point to one of the things we talked about earlier, is if you look at the, the continuous narrative, the, the, the whole of the story. So this fragmentation of Europe into multiple independent polities, um, this comes about you know, basically West, in Western Europe, at least, this comes about in you know, the 5th, 6th centuries um, CE. Yet you know, more than a thousand years are going to pass before that leads to any kind of European global domination. But that simply didn't matter until you got in a world where the Atlantic was changing its meanings and it was shrinking. Now, at that point, I don't think it would have made 
that much difference, whether you had a single empire dominating Europe or multiple states um, dominating Europe. I think having multiple states did make certain things easier, definitely. I mean, it's not, not like this is irrelevant. And the Columbus story, uh, it's a good story, and it's not altogether a silly one either. He did get turned down by almost everybody that he talked to. And when he finally got funded... Um, by the Spaniards, by their royal family. It, it seems to have been more to like, just to get rid of the guy than because they actually believed anything he was saying. Just you know, get them out of here. Isabella said, you know, this little pile of money he wants, that's nothing compared to the amount of my time he's wasting. So off he goes and he does his thing. And of course he comes back convinced, not that he's found America, but that he's been to Japan. Um, so I think you know, Columbus, yeah, certainly if there had been one royal court to go to, that royal court could have turned down Columbus. Uh, on the other hand, that royal court could have backed Columbus much more effectively than the Spaniards were able to back I mean, him in, in the real world. And I mean, people will make this contrast between the end of the Chinese treasure fleets in the 15th century and the success of Columbus at the end of the 15th century and say, oh, well, it was all the whims of the emperor. Well, the thing is, it wasn't all the whims of the emperor. And what happened was um, Zheng He is out there sailing all around the Indian Ocean, a little way into the Pacific as well. There was always strong resistance to Zheng He for the very good reason that there wasn't really anywhere for him to go that uh, China was the center of markets. China was the richest, most sophisticated place. There was money to be got trading with India, certainly, but not all that much. It's like the um, economic geography that China faced was one that constantly funneled things back to China. And the early Ming dynasty, when they were supporting the, the treasure fleets, it was more as a prestige and political exercise than as an economic one. And so when, after Zheng He finally dies, uh, the Chinese start asking themselves, as they've been doing for 50 years, they, they continue asking themselves, do we really want to support these fleets? And the emperor who says no, the emperor, I believe he was 12 years old at the point that he says no. He is not the guy actually making the decision. The people making the decision are um, the emperor's advisors who are the most educated, most sophisticated thinkers on the entire planet. And a group of these men get together, discuss these voyages, say they are not really paying off anything to us. Let's discontinue them. And then multiple times over the next half century, five or six times, People come back to different sets of advisors saying, let's start these up again. Different sets of advisors look at them and say, no, there's nothing in it for us. Turn them down. Um, and I think the reason that happened is not a contrast between a centralized unified empire and a fragmented politically dispersed Europe. It's a contrast between the economic geographies of the two ends of Eurasia. Um, no ruler at the eastern end is ever going to see anything other than vanity um, value in funding these voyages. Whereas if you're in Europe, it's obvious that if you believe Columbus, it's obvious you want to fund somebody like him because he's going to offer you quicker ways to get to the east and make more money. It's just that European kings see quite rightly that Columbus's claim that it's only 3,000 miles to America is ridiculous. Everybody knows the world is round. Everybody knows it's 10, 12,000 miles to China. He's an idiot because what they didn't know is America is in the way and that can then create these new kinds of flows of wealth and um, dwarf what you can make by sailing directly to China. But yeah, I think... Um, if you focus on the political fragmentation of Europe, you're looking again at proximate causes, not ultimate causes, at contributing factors, not actually decisive factors. And I think the reason 
so many political scientists have focused on the political fragmentation of Europe as the driving force in what happened is because it's a political factor and they are political scientists. And this is one of the, uh, I think, abiding problems of the university. In order to be as intellectually successful as we have been over the last few hundred years, we've had to split things up into university departments that are around defined disciplines. And people within those disciplines tend to think their discipline is the one thing that really matters. So people in the humanities who study culture tend to think culture is deciding everything. Economists who study economics think, well, what do you know? Economics just drives everything. Political scientists think politics drive everything. And I think once you start getting out of these little silos a little bit, you begin to see, ah, there's, there's a little more going on here. So yeah, I think the politics thing, the politics obviously is important, but I don't think it's a decisive factor. Okay, last question, and it's, a, it's an easy one. What do you think of the idea of Western civilization? So the reason I ask is because I've, I've heard you say some sort of uh, skeptical things about Western civilization. And I can understand that, you know, there are some really strong narratives of West is best that we don't really want to lean into and aren't really supported by the long-term historical evidence. But on the other hand, you know, this conversation we've been having and some of the books you've written, they do seem to assume that there is some kind of Western tradition, whether it starts in the Fertile Crescent or in Greece or, or whatever, and wherever it goes, whether it goes to the States or, or Britain or, or wherever, whatever its precise boundaries are, there is something there called the West. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um, when I started writing that book, Why the West Rules for Now, obviously, you know, one of the first things I needed to do was define the terms in my title. And West, you know, clearly one of the big terms in my title. So what does that mean? And so you know, normally what you do when you're trying to clarify your terminology is look around at what other people have used that word to mean. And what I found very quickly was what a lot of people before me had found is that there's just this bewildering profusion of ways people define the West. And I realized, again, a lot of people realized it before me, that on the whole, what was tending to happen was that people were, rather than saying, you know, why has the West come to dominate the planet? And then looking at the various causal variables, people would pick on something that they thought was important and define the West in terms of that and then say that's what's driving the whole story. So it was an entirely circular argument. So some would say it's all about democracy. Democracy is what makes the West best. And they would then define the West as the place that had democracy. And so they say the story of the West goes back really to the late 18th century. Others would say it's Christianity. Christianity is what makes the Western world, and that's what made the Western world dominant. So the story goes back 2,000 years or maybe just 1,000 to um, papacy becoming so important. You pick on different things, and you're basically looking to define the West from your own perspective here in the present, and then looking, um, just tracing it back into the past uh, a short distance and looking solely within that bubble. It seemed to me the best way to go about this was to start at the other end and say, well, at what point do we begin to see really major divergences between different parts of the globe? And that's the point. That's how you should. And, and what, what drives these? That would be how you define a Western region and decide what actually drives it being Western. And it seemed to me that the end of the Ice Age, the beginning of the agricultural revolution um, in southwestern Asia, this was the first point when you begin to see really powerful divergences between different parts of the world. And um, the agricultural revolution that begins in southwest Asia, that is the, the westernmost of these um, within the old world. And so I decided that the best way to define the West was as the various civilizations that had developed in one way or another sort of descendant from that original Western agricultural revolution. Best way to define the East was civilizations 
descending in various ways from the original Eastern Agricultural Revolution in China, which gives you a much longer term perspective on things. Also leads you to define the West in a rather different way than a lot of people do. I think a lot of the definitions of the West are very politically driven and are really just smoke screens for other political agendas. And so my way of defining the West, that meant that what we now call the Middle East, Southwest Asia, is absolutely part of the West. Islam is as much part of the West as Christianity. And this is certainly something that the founders of Islam would have absolutely agreed with. You know, according to the stories, you know, one of the first thing Muhammad did after he had his visions was write to the emperors of Byzantium and the Persian Empire saying, good news, guys. You know, I've just had word from God. And um, God has explained to me how the stories of Christianity and, and um, Judaism and all the other Near Eastern religions, how these come to their culmination. And we've now got the culmination. So I am bringing together all of these different regional traditions into one great big thing, which he apparently was, Muhammad was very surprised when he never heard back from the Byzantine and Persian emperors. They, of course, were absolutely appalled at this. Um, and so as Islam becomes a major force, I think you do tend to see Islamic intellectuals will at least early on, are looking at the Christians as just a branch of the same family as them. And the goal of Islam is to unify all these things. Was Christians increasingly feeling embattled, casting the Muslims as this, these outsiders, these others, the, the not us. So I think that you know, that was one big consequence of um, the way I define the West, that I think uh, that, that helps, really does help make a lot of sense of Western history. And you know, when I was writing the book in the 2000s, this, of course, was the high point of um, the struggle against Islamist terrorism and other things. And I think it, it helps to understand that what we were looking at here was not a struggle between the West and the other. It was an argument over what the West is really about. Should the West be about this, you know, to my mind, bizarre radical reinterpretation of early Islam that the Islamists were peddling? Or should it be about the creation of a sort of global civilization based on freedom of speech, freedom of movement, free markets, free enterprise, all these sorts of things, an argument about what the West is fundamentally about? And I guess the, the last thing I'll say, that the other consequence of this way of looking at the West is um, that I started to feel that a lot of the arguments about, you know, is there a Western civilization? Is it under threat in various ways? These really were just kind of terminological issues that um, the kind of thing that uh, a lot of us tend to think of as Western, like say, say you know, freedom of various kinds, freedom to speak your mind, freedom to think whatever thoughts you want to think, um, freedom to criticize other people's thoughts, freedom to force them to defend their arguments by appealing to actual evidence and reliable methods, freedom to go where you want, freedom to invest, you, freedom in all these sorts of ways. These things really took off in Western Europe and its North American colonies um, in the 18th century. And they took off, I think, not because they're Western, but because those were the kinds of ideas that worked best in the new kind of economy that was being created around the North Atlantic. And a lot of parts of Europe, of course, people really hated these new ideas. And so if you live in Paris, you know, having the new ideas can be distinctly dangerous. If you live in Italy, it can be even more dangerous. You know, Galileo has to recant what he's saying uh, because it doesn't seem to fit uh, with the canonical view of Christianity. There's all these arguments going on. And uh, a particular set of ideas focused on freedom begins to triumph in the 18th century, really takes off in the 19th century with the, the success of democracy. Um, because 
people are starting to realize that this is the best way to take advantage of the new opportunities created by this North Atlantic economy. And as this began to get globalized, as the West began to dominate the world, people in other countries, not in what we geographically tend to think of as the West, started to see this is a really effective way to run our world by going down this path toward greater freedom, greater openness. So, of course, it gets these ideas get carried out to New Zealand by um, Western colonists to Australia, um, to, to North and South America. It gets globalized in that way. I'd say, yeah, in a sense, it's a non-argument because these aren't Western ideas. These are the ideas that work, or at least have so far worked best in the world we've created since the 18th century. And in the 20th century, I think one of the big things we saw was that the more a society was willing to go down the path of opening up in various ways, the, the more successful it was likely to be. You always had the option, if you were a ruler, of saying, no, I'm not going to do that. You could be the Taliban, say, say we're not going to do that. We're not going to let girls go to school. We're not going to have any of these Western freedoms. These are all terrible things. You can do that. You can try to impose that on people by force if you want to do that. But on the whole, I think for people outside Afghanistan, it's very difficult to convince yourself that that's a good idea. Um, just if you go down that path of resisting the tide of history, you pay a really heavy price for doing it. All right. Thank you, Ian, so much for, for coming on this podcast. And um, I recommend to listeners and viewers that they check out, especially this book, Why the West Rules for Now. You've also got this new book out, I should mention again, Geography is Destiny. People can check that out. If you're a specialist in Greek history, you're interested in history to an academic degree, then I'd also recommend this book. It's a bit, bit more of a specialist. But um, yeah, I'll put some links below the uh, video. So thanks very much, Ian. Well, thanks so much for having me on the podcast. It's great to see you again. It's been a long time.